The Beat Church, bringing you messages of inspiration, hope, and freedom. Turn up the volume and get ready for the truth that will set you free. gone through all of them. And now the easy one, relationships. Isn't that the easiest of everything? Um, I know, that one I missed, I skipped, because I knew if we even talked about relationships, I even purposely typoed that, Brandon, because people would just bail, right? Relationships, I'm out. How many people have ever heard like, man, all I need is me and Jesus? Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever said that? Okay, well, a lot of people say that, and a lot of people are like, oh, all I need is me and Jesus. I just get out in the mountains, it's me and Jesus, that's all I need. Well, it is true that sometimes it's good to just get away with just you and Jesus. But the Bible says that the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another, right? That requires some community. And so we're going to go through, and I'm going to do a lot of scripture today, and uh, so just get ready. We're going through a ton of scripture, and so... I want you guys to get a full picture of what God's talking about with relationships, and I'll try to mix a few stories in here, but we're just really going to plow through the word. Um, and Donnie, you could probably tone me down just a little bit, because I'm echoing pretty hard up here. Um, I appreciate the, the volume, but I think it's just a little much. Okay, 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7. What's the most difficult thing about relationships? Anybody want to throw a couple guesses out? What's the hardest thing about relationships? The other person. What else? What? Deciding where to eat is hard on relationships. Anything else? Just decisions, trying to get unity on stuff. What'd you say? Decisions, right? Trying to come to some kind of unity, some kind of connection. Um, I like what my wife said, the other person. Uh, I could tell you how our marriage has been, but that's another story. Uh, Here's what I think is the most difficult part of relationships. It's found in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 7. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, surely here before the Lord is his anointed. He looks at this person, he says, this must be the anointed of the Lord, right? Probably a very good looking, strong, awesome looking person. He's like, this is somebody who's obviously anointed by the Lord. But then the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man does, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. One of the things that makes relationships so difficult is that we really can't see the other person's heart. We can't see their intentions, right? We don't know, like, if they're doing something good for us, if it's meant sincerely or if there's something that they're trying to get. You ever got a gift and somebody gives you something, you're like, uh, I don't want to say no because I really want this, (laughs) but I'm not sure what your intentions are here, right? Anybody ever been through that? Or else you are in a relationship with somebody and it seems like it's a great relationship and you only find out, you know, a couple of months in or so, like, uh, they are not like what I thought, right? And all of a sudden you realize there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's all these things that we look on the outside and we're like, oh, man, I wish I just knew. I wish I could read your mind and know what's really going on in there before I get too much farther into this. Or you get in an argument. And then you find out two hours later, once everybody's calmed down, right, 
and you're sweeping all the broken dishes up off the floor, right? And you're just saying, okay, we're going to get along now. Everything's good. And then you both share like, well, that's not really what I meant. When I said that, I didn't really mean that. This is what I meant. Now you're calm and you're communicating better. And you're like, well, if I could have only saw your heart at the beginning, we wouldn't have had to, you know, break all of our stuff. Because I just didn't know that's what you meant. I didn't know that's where you were at. So the inability to see our intentions and see our heart makes it pretty hard at times to have good communication and to really connect well. So my question is, if we cannot see the inside, but God can, then when we make decisions on how to relate to each other, should we go by our own ideas, our own plan, or should we go by God's? Right? Justin's a mechanic back here, and he works on cars all the time. Fixes them, boom, boom, fix, bam, just like that, done. It's like magic. Shows up, boom, car's good. Because he knows how to look inside of the engine, even to look inside of the computer codes and say, okay, I'm going to fix this car. This is what's wrong with that. Fix it. Okay? I know how to look on the outside. Right? I don't know what it means on the inside. But if you brought me your car and said, hey, it's making a bing, pow, ching, tong, noise, and I said, don't worry, I'll fix it. My first car, I did that. My first car, it was making this click, click kind of sound when I turned it on and pushed the gas. And so in my mind, I thought, something is stuck. And what do you do if something is stuck in a pipe or in a tube? You blow it out. You push it through. So I sat in a driveway for like 30 minutes and just kept revving it up, waiting for whatever it was to break loose, just over and over. I seemed to get loud and I... And then pretty soon it stopped. And what I found out later was that it was out of oil and that clicking sound was pistons banging and that I was literally trying to blow my engine out, not just something out of my engine, but literally blow my engine out. And so that was my first car. And uh, I destroyed it. My uncle had to help me with it, um, which is a much longer story because he towed it, and I had taken the pin out of my sunroof. And when he towed it, the sunroof blew off on the freeway, (sighs) which I could have fixed for $40. That's how much it was to get a new piece of glass cut at the glass shop. But no, I decided it would be better to get a new sunroof at a U-Pull-It. And I went to the U-Pull-It and got one. I brought it home. It didn't fit. So then I borrowed somebody's metal clippers, and I cut a new hole in my roof without any measuring tools. I did it all by eye. The good news is my sunroof fit right in there. The bad news is it left a whole lot of space around the side of it. And so a couple of tubes of silicone later, I had the thing set, and it would stay in there while I drove. And the only time anything would come in is when it rained, it would get a leak that came through and dripped on the driver's seat. And that was my first. So if you wanted somebody to work on your car, would you want someone to work on it that knew what the inside was going on or just somebody that was kind of like guessing from the outside? Raise your hand if you want somebody that knows the inside to work on it. Okay. Keep your hand up if you actually would prefer someone that just is guessing from the outside. Just looking for one person to be confused and vote for me. But no, it's not going to happen. Okay. So talking about relationships now, 
If God sees the inside and we only see the outside, why would we want to trust our own decisions, our own opinions on how to deal with people instead of trusting God's decisions and God's right? Sometimes we're revving an engine with somebody over and over and over again, pushing on something, thinking if I could just get this free, if I just, just chew them out enough, or if I just talk it through enough with them, or if I just uh, do this enough, it's going to fix it. We end up just blowing the person out. And God's like, that's not how I told you to deal with it. But we trust our own opinion instead of going to God's word. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through God's word and get a whole bunch of instruction on different types of relationships. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to start. And this is God's instruction for dealing with ourselves, right? How to relate to ourself. Anybody ever struggle with that? How to relate with yourself? I know all of you have more than one self, more than one personality, at least the people I've spent much time with. It's like, hey, do you want to go to lunch? Well, which one of you is going to show up? Because the one I'd love to have lunch with, the other one, hmm. Let's just see who's coming, right? Anybody like that ever? Okay. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God looks down. He sees Adam in the garden. He says, man, it's not good for this guy to be alone. And yet our desire all the time is like, if I could just get alone, everything would be fine, right? I just need, some, I just need my space. I just need my time. I just need to be, be alone, right? And this goes for men or women. But God's plan and purpose for ourselves is not for us to be alone. Does that mean we never have a season of being alone? No, we can. But when we isolate for too long, it's not a solution. It's actually a problem. It creates loneliness. It creates a, a mindset that we get stuck on tracks of thinking that aren't right. We think something through all the way, and we got this great plan. I'm sure you've probably had this experience before. I know I've had it lots of times. I go to my wife. I say, man, I've been thinking. And she's like, by yourself? I'm like, yeah, by myself. Well, let me hear that idea. And I share the idea. And like, eh, you should have thought with somebody's help. Sometimes we can get stuck on a thought too long, good or bad. And we don't have any other perspective on it. And then all of a sudden we come together and we're talking about it and we're just like, yeah, I guess I've been beating myself up too long on this and and I should have talked to somebody because they're like, man, that wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, you messed up, but get up and move on. It wasn't that big a deal. But I've been thinking for a week on how terrible it was. We're not supposed to be alone. We're supposed to be together so that we can encourage and lift each other up and build each other up and celebrate each other's victories. But that, first of all, is how we're supposed to relate to ourselves. We're supposed to relate not as a, just an individual, but with the idea that, you know what, I need to be connected to other people. And that is God's instruction for us. Now, family, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen. Let's go home. Praise God. That's a good word, huh? Pastor, that's a good word right there. Amen. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen. Can I get some teenagers? Shout it out. Amen. Can I get some teenagers in this section? Amen. Amen. Can I get some teenagers with my same last name? Amen. <laughs> Woo, there we go. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Love that verse. Only that's not the whole thing. It says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So, Honoring our father and mother makes it go well with us. Then we will live long in the land. Things will be good. Right? 
And so the way that verse was interpreted to me oftentimes as a kid was, you need to listen to me. I started you. I can end you. (laughs) Which is, it kind of means the same thing in a way, right? Like, if if you listen to me, your life's going to be long and good. Implication, if you don't, it will be short and bad, right? (laughs) But the verse goes on. This is where parents need to be like, okay, hold on a second. This is the part that we don't pay attention to or that we forget. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Hmm. Hmm. Like, for me, that comes naturally. I've never, ever provoked any of my kids to anger in any way whatsoever. (laughs) But as a parent, as a father or a mother, at times, we can get so just, we want this thing to be done this way because we know it's best for them that we just let them have it. We're so angry. Chew them out, call them names that aren't on their birth certificate, do all kinds of stuff, (laughs) right? We're going after it. And then they get mad, and everybody's mad, and every spirit's crushed. But this is what it says. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Which way are we supposed to bring them? Up. Up. Right? Up. Not down, up. You can discipline in a way that crushes and pushes people down. You can instruct and raise kids in a way that crushes them and pushes them down. You can also instruct or discipline in a way that brings people up, right? It brings their spirit up. It brings their hope up. It brings their confidence up. It brings their value and self-worth up or in a way that pushes it and crushes it down, right? And so we're supposed to raise them up in the discipline of the Lord, up in the ways of God, right? In other words, it's it's a little less of, well, you're this is wrong with you, and that's wrong with you, and you're bad, and a little bit more of, man, God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. I don't think that's the best route for you. I see more in you. I think God wants to bring you this way. Here's what it looks like, okay? And I have fallen on both sides of this, Okay, I was going to bring a kid up for a testimony, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I've fallen on both sides of this, right? I have lost my cool, and I have said things I wish I never said as a dad. And I have also said things that encourage and build up. And so sometimes it's, we're people. We screw it up. And so we got a man. I got I to watch that. But words stick. They used to say when I was a kid in school all the time, they'd say, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never harm me, Right? But it's just not true. Words are so harmful. I got hit with so many things as a kid, I don't even remember. We used to shoot BB guns at each other, like loaded ones, chase each other around with pellet guns, shooting each other and trying to run and dodge them. We used to throw uh, unripened plums at each other, which are basically rocks, right? Throw those at each other and chase each other. All the stuff you can't do now. Uh, But we used to do all of that stuff, just constant torment, And I don't really remember who hit me with what, who shot me with what. I don't remember any of that stuff. But I do remember some things that people said, right? My wife did shoot me with a blow dart once in the neck. Um, Do you guys want to hear that story? All right, come back next week. Uh, And we're just going to dive into that. Okay, I will tell you this story really fast. Um, She's very peaceful. You guys all know her as peaceful, gentle Carrie. But she hasn't always been that way. 
it took a lot of my care and instruction to help her get this peaceful. <laughs> when we first got married, I don't remember what I said to her, but I said something to her in our living room, and we had a bunch of people over, and I had a, it wasn't one of those little blow dart guns for kids, it was actually a hunting blow dart gun, so it was like four feet long, and it blows the darts hard and fast, it's for killing rabbits and animals and stuff, and she, she says, do not say that, take it back, and I was like, I'm not taking anything back, now it was just a joke, and so she lifts up this blow dart gun, and she's like, take it back now, or I'm shooting you, and I'm like standing like probably from, I would say from me, me to Alan right here from her, and I'm right by the door, and I'm like, you would never shoot me. She lifts it up to her lips, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to shoot me. And so I turned, right as I see her lungs filling up, I turned to grab the doorknob because I'm going to flee out the front door, and just as I grab the doorknob and start to click it, I just hear, <laughs> And immediately, a sharp, stinging pain goes right into the back of my neck, and I turn around, <laughs> I'm like, what's happening? And I go to pull it out, but I couldn't pull it out. It was in there, like that far. Had I not, had I not turned around, it would have gone right through my larynx, and I wouldn't even be here today. So attempted murder. That's a fact. What's the statute? What is the statute of limitations? Is there an officer in the room? I want to know because I'm starting to have a second thought. Is that long? 20 years? Is that still within range? Because she just said she's, she's confessed. Cuff her. It went, straight, it went straight in the back. I had to pull the thing out. And she just still, to this day, doesn't even apologize for that. Yeah, it was awful. So... Okay, enough of the trauma. So now I've been shot in the neck with a blowgun, and I've been shot through the stomach with a rifle, um, which is when I was hunting. That one wasn't by Carrie, uh, but very traumatic life God has delivered me from. Uh, marriage, that takes us right into this next place, which is marriage. <laughs> Ephesians... You know what, I just say this, if you're going to boycott Disney, can I tell you the biggest reason to boycott Disney? Happily ever after. <laughs> what a bill of goods they've been selling for decades. That's the reason right there, to shut it down, false advertisement. <laughs> Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. As Christ loves the church, how did Christ love the church? He literally was pierced, as was I, for <laughs> the church. He was literally stabbed with a spear. He was pierced in his hands and feet. We're going to talk about it at Easter. He literally gave up his life for her, for us as the body of Christ. And so husbands, when you're like, man, my wife's bothering me. Oh, she's just making me uncomfortable. Oh, she's just, do you know what? Too bad. You got to suck it up. You got to just go to God and say, yeah, I need some help. My wife's bothering me this way. My wife isn't, isn't, she's making me uncomfortable. My life isn't quite feeling the way I want it to feel. Do you know what? You are a Christian. 
You are a man following after God. And so your actual job, your actual duty is to lay your life down for her. It's not to say, oh, you don't please me in this way. You need to please me like this or I'm out of here. You need to please me like this or I'm never talking to you again. I'm shutting things down. I'm not gonna... You're supposed to literally love and serve her. You're supposed to wake up each day and you're supposed to say, you know, God, your mercies are new every morning. Not just for me, but for her. And I'm going to live in a way that serves and loves her, even if there's things that I wish right now were different or could change. I'm still going to love and serve this person because that's God's call on my life. That's what it is to be a believer and to be married. Ephesians 5.33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so the instruction is for wives is to give respect, to give honor to the husband. Now, well, why? That's, why is that different? You know, I know it may not be always politically or culturally correct, but there are some differences between male and females and their actual way that they just relate. It's not always the same, but as a general rule, and psychologists have accepted it for decades and decades and decades, relationship counselors, that men tend to appreciate more of being respected than they do of being loved. That's just, hey, I want some respect, you know? That's just part of, of how men are wired. And so do you know what? Well, I don't respect my husband. There's nothing to respect about him. Well, that's when you go to the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything about this man? Is there anything at all that I could respect? And do you know what? If the only thing that you can respect is that he's still there, when so many other men have left their families and left their kids and they're gone, and you're like, you know what? He doesn't provide enough. He's not kind enough. He doesn't buy me flowers. He, he's not in good shape. He doesn't even take care of himself. He doesn't mow the lawn well. I'm throwing in a few things I don't do well. Um, <laughs> then you can just say, do you know what? He's here. And if that's where I have to start, I'm just going to just respect that and pray that God grows some other things that are respectable over the years. And so you find a way. Well, that's... Why can't I just talk about the other things? Well, it's just a difference between being a believer and trying to live under God's instruction instead of our own. And so we talk about, are you going to go by what you see on the outside or on the inside? Sometimes when we follow God's instructions, good things happen. He says, you know what, just, just respect. Well, I know, but I just want to tell them about all the things they've done wrong. All the things they're not living up to. And that will get them to be, better, be a better man or a better person. Well, it doesn't usually work that way. It usually just discourages them, makes them want to check out. But if you can find one thing to respect and just keep watering that, like, I got this whole garden, but there's only one plant. I'm just going to keep watering that one spot. Then they say, oh, this feels good. Maybe I'm going to do something else that's worth respecting. And they can start to grow in that. But these are instructions that God gives on how to relate to each other. Church family, Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Outcry and slander, along with every form of malice. So all these nasty emotions that we get towards each other. Even in the church, right? You show up at church and be like, ah, I hope this person doesn't show up. Ah. That can happen in church. That person said something. They did something. I didn't like it. But here's what we're supposed to do instead. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. My mom made us say this all the time growing up, all the time. Anytime we had an argument, she would get us back in the room. Okay, tell me Ephesians 4.32. 
And we'd be sitting there just through our teeth saying, I forgive you, I'm tenderhearted. Then she'd say, hug each other. Not hugging anybody, hug each other. I'd be sitting so mad, she's like, well, nobody's leaving this room until you hug each other. And you can say, tenderhearted forgiveness with a smile. And she'd keep us there. We could stay there sometimes for an hour, two hours. We're just sitting there like, I'm not doing it. Well, we're not leaving. And so we would just sit there. I think it was actually easier for her because it kept us all in one place, seven kids. <laughs> she was probably hoping we wouldn't forgive, hoping that we wouldn't go back out and play because then she has to watch everything. But now we're just all... This tenderheartedness and this forgiveness, is, it's a posture we're supposed to have towards each other. And here's one way to think of it. If I walked up and had, you know, say, say Matt was right here, right? And Matt, come up here for a second. We'll just use Matt. Come on, Matt. You were already on stage once, worship guy. Let's give Matt another hand for being so great. It's amazing. Okay, if Matt was here and I just walked by Matt, right, and he's just minding his own business, and I just walked by Matt and I just bumped Matt like that, right, and Matt's fine, but then I come back around later and I just bump Matt again, right? Like how many times? So see, he's already getting stiffer. He's already hardening. Only took one bump and Matt's already like, you're not pushing me anywhere. Okay, if somebody's bumping you and pushing you, it gets a little frustrating, right? Like, why are you doing that? If you're just out here in the hallway and somebody keeps walking by and they literally just bump you or they come through the hallway and they just like grab on you like that and they just start walking by and then they just hit you, would you get a little irritated after a couple times? Be like, dude, back off. Like, just walk. I'm trying to stand here. Okay, would it make any difference in your opinion of them if you were all on an ice skating rink and they were like, coming by. Would that make any difference to you if I was coming by and I was like starting to grab you like this and there was, what would, you, would your response be to stiffen up and shove me down? <laughs> or would it maybe be to like kind of grab me and help me a little bit, right? All right, thank you, Matt. You can go and fall with me. So life is not solid ground, folks. Life is much more, much more like an ice skating rink. People are all trying to stay upright and there's all kinds of things trying to take them down. Family issues, financial issues, cultural issues, mental issues, emotional issues, all types of stuff trying to cause people to fall. And sometimes when somebody bumps into you, they do something that you don't like, they, they, something that irritates you, in some way they responded or did something, it's not because they're just being rude. They're just, they're out of balance. Because something just happened 15 minutes earlier that threw them out of balance. And they're, they're still not back up. And if we view each other that way, instead of viewing each other as always like, oh, that person's so like solid and strong, we're all solid and strong, and whatever they did was intentional to try to harm me, if instead we look at it and go, okay, I'm assuming that when I get around people today, people are living on slippery ground in one form or another. And so if somebody does something that seems to push on me, pull on me, do something to me, I'm just going to assume the best. I'm going to assume that's not what they intended to do. In fact, I'm going to assume that they might actually need my help because they might be falling. And I'm going to have that posture. That's a tenderheartedness that's different than our normal perspective. Going on with church family, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. They're already doing it. He's saying, hey, keep doing it. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Why does he keep reminding them about it? They're already doing it. Well, it's easy to just kind of 
either through offense or apathy to just stop pouring love out on people, right? That's easy to do, but we need it. A lot of times it takes somebody to be having a crisis before somebody's like, oh man, we love you, we care for you, right? And that's similar, going back to the car I had, it's similar to waiting until you hear the engine banging before you put oil in. The reason he keeps reminding and talking about it is it's better to keep the wheels greased, it's better to keep the gears greased and things in motion all the time, always loving, always encouraging, always helping each other, so that when things start to heat up, there's already some lubrication going on in their spirit, right? Not just looking for, well, is that person really down? I guess I better go say something nice. I better go pick them up. No, but we're just always adding value to somebody, always trying to encourage or lift them up, always spotting something good. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. So the last one on church family. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager jumps out, right? Oh, okay, I guess I'm going to, an eagerness. Like, man, I want to have unity with you, right? I got an offense. Man, I'm eager to connect and get this thing resolved. Right? Well, have you talked to them yet? No, I don't want to talk to them. They're probably not going to listen anyway. Are you sure? You might just want to talk to them? No. No, I'm just letting it go. Just letting it go right off my back. Water off a duck. I've only talked to 32 people about it. I've only talked to everyone in the church, plus posted online, but I'm totally just right off my back. Right off. Doesn't bother me at all. Okay, the only person you haven't talked to is them, right? Yeah, because I'm letting it go. It's just be eager to go to the person and say, Man, let's get unity. Let's fix this. Let's make this right. I mean, so many times there's things that are just, they're not big. But the fact that there's no conversation, there's no talk about it, it just causes it to just become bigger and bigger and bigger, and the suffering becomes more and more and more. You know, it's like having a, a splinter in your foot. It's not a big deal. But after a couple of days, it gets bigger. And after a week, and it's starting to swell up, you're like, oh, maybe I should just stop and get it out. Just sitting there, talking to them, working it through, well, that's not comfortable. Well, it's also not comfortable to have an infection. So you might as well just deal with it and get it out. And you might as well just talk to them. And trust that, that God is going to work in there because it's to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That means that God's Spirit works to help us have unity as we connect and talk things through. The next group that we have to relate to, God and your neighbors. Both God and your neighbors. It's interesting that in this verse, when he gives commandments, he gives commandment about himself and then also about neighbors. Why? We tend to love our family somewhat naturally, depending on the day and the hour. But we tend to love our family, right? We tend to love ourselves. And I know it's popular to say, well, I just, I don't love myself. But reality is even people who don't love themselves are often making very selfish decisions, which means their decisions are pointed towards themselves, right? Which means they really do love themselves, Right? They're not loving themselves in a healthy way, but they are putting themselves first, which is a form of, I, I love myself. I'm putting my needs and my desires and my wants first. But who we tend to struggle with is really showing God the proper honor and love and affection 
for all that he's done for us, making us, providing for us, covering our sins, all these things. And then also just loving our neighbors, those people who are in our life, but that aren't necessarily always just directly benefiting us or just directly a part of our DNA, our bloodline. And so here's the instruction that he gives for that. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So literally, God's call is to love our neighbor. Well, who's our neighbor? Well, Jesus answered that question. In the story of the Good Samaritan, the neighbor was the person that was in need and who in that story, by the way, was of a completely different belief system, a completely different race, a completely different caste that was actually against each other at the time. So to love your neighbor isn't just to love the guy next door that barbecues and invites you over, but it's to love the people in and around your life that you come into contact to with that may have some type of an issue going on in their life where they need someone to love them, serve them, and care for them. And you really, for all reasons that you can possibly think of, do not even want to be around them. They have a different political view. They have a different moral view. They have a different life view. They're a different race. They're a different economic status. They're different in so many ways that you don't even want to even talk to them. In the story of the Good Samaritan, that's who the neighbor was. If you read the history on how those, how those communities related. It's to be able to say, you know what, I don't agree with anything about you. But I'm going to love and care for you. I'm going to meet your need. I'm going to help you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do something that blesses you. And that's how God wants us to relate. In our culture, that's certainly not popular. That's just not how this, that's not how this culture works. In our culture, if you do not 100% agree with somebody, Okay, then we cancel them, we cast them out, we do that so you agree with everything about me or else you're canceled and you're pushed out. In kingdom culture, in God's culture, we love anyways. We care anyways, we serve anyways, we help anyways because our end motivation isn't manipulation. Our end motivation isn't I'm gonna help you, serve you, and care for you so that you'll have my same opinion. It's I'm gonna help you, serve you, care for you because God made you, you're valuable, and I'm supposed to do that because you're my neighbor. I'm supposed to show how much he loves you. Well, but does God really? I want you to listen to this verse, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. This directly deals with our enemies and how we're supposed to relate to them. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because then you're actually showing that you're a child of God. Not just because you professed faith, not just because you were baptized, not just because I come to church, but I'm showing I'm a child of God because I love my enemies and I pray for those who persecute me. And that identifies me as somebody who's like, oh, that's amazing. Look at him, such an athlete. Fantastic, right? My wife's so encouraging and uplifting. You see certain characteristics and you're like, wow, that must be that person's son, right? Or that must be that person's daughter. Because there's a resemblance. 
When people see that we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us, remember Jesus was on the cross and what was his prayer? Father, forgive them. They're literally hanging him up there. Talk about a cooling off period. There was no, no cooling off, no relaxing, no waiting. He's literally pierced, he's literally bleeding, he's literally hanging there in excruciating agony. They're still cursing at him, spitting at him, mocking him, and he's like, forgive them. And so when we love our enemies and we pray for those that are persecuting us, people look at it and they go, that reminds me of someone. That reminds me of Jesus. And that's what they're supposed to see in us. Not constant attack of people with a different view or with a different heart or with a different position, but a love and a prayer and and an actual earnest love and care for people. Doesn't mean agreement all the time. Jesus didn't probably agree with being whipped and nailed and it's not what he wanted to do. But there was still love even through the pain, even through the disagreement, even through the suffering. Then it goes on, it says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. This sounds like tax people have been the same for all the years. (laughs) Does anybody here work for the IRS? If you're here and you work for the IRS, I just want to say we do love you. And we pray for you that persecute us, okay? We care. Uh, But even back then, they had this horrible reputation, I guess. But it says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, which is unbelievers, do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does it mean by perfect? I can never make a mistake? No. The word perfect is talking about completeness, wholeness, right? So in other words, your love, your Christian love, that's developing in your heart and in your person, it's not completed. You're putting a puzzle together. You get all done, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm missing a piece. I should have bought something at the dollar store instead of at the garage sale, right? Because this one's missing a piece after I did all this work. The piece that is often missing in Christian love that completes the, the puzzle, the picture that God's trying to give, is the love for our enemies and for those that persecute us. A genuine love, one that would serve, one that would care for, one that would want to go and to be a blessing and to serve if we could and to help. The government. Woo! Should we get into this or should we just dismiss right now? Okay, here's the government, another place where we're supposed to have relational wholeness. Boy, it seems like God just doesn't leave any area of our life alone. He's just after all of it, marriage, family, neighbors, ourselves, our enemies, the government. But here it goes, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge you. Now, why, why would somebody need to urge people? You ever have to urge somebody to do something? What's the reason you have to urge them? They're probably not doing it, right? Come on, let's get ready. We got to get out the door. We got places to be, right? I got to urge you. Right, because they're not, they're not, it's not happening naturally. Got to figure out how to urge him to do it. So he's urging them. In other words, they probably struggled to get this done. The one where they were having a difficulty. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now. In our, our time, we're like, well, yeah, but I don't like the government. I don't like what the government's doing. I don't like the kings, the rulers, the authorities. Okay? And you may not agree with them. You may not like some of them. 
But in their time, people were literally being dragged from their homes and stoned by the government. Literally dragged from their homes and hung on crosses and killed. Like talking about persecution, a government you don't like. Like this, this was really heavy. In fact, Nero, back in these early Bible times, uh, he actually would take believers and he would tie them, dip them in oil, mount them on posts all around his, his garden patio, and then he would use them for the lighting of his parties outside. Just literally light believers and have them burn all around his, all around his party and they'd be out there feasting and having fun and celebrating. And that's recorded in secular history, not just biblical history. Like he thought that was a great time. And yet, they're talking about pray for them, make supplication for them. And then it goes on, for this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you're talking to people who literally may have had their uncle or their cousin or their aunt or their brother or their sister or their spouse be the tiki torch for a party, and you're saying pray for that guy because your father wants them to be saved. Well, that's the last thing I'm praying for. I don't want him to be saved, forgiven, led into heaven. No, nope, not happening. But he's urging them to pray even for those people so that they can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, be forgiven, and have relationship with God. The Christian way for relationships, this is Romans 12. I'm going to kind of scan through this. I'm not going to really break it down verse by verse, but this is kind of a whole picture, Romans 12, of what it is to really walk a Christian life, Christian relationship. And the aim here today is not to, it's really just for us to understand that it's a very different way to live and to relate than culture or than our own flesh wants us to. It's just different. And how do we do it? Well, we can only do it through God because it identifies us as his children. We need his spirit to do it. We can't just make ourselves. We have to spend time in prayer and fellowship with the Lord, reading his word and saying, God, help me to do this. I don't, I don't feel this. Help me to live this out. The Bible says it's he, God, that works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Lord, I don't love this person, but I'm supposed to pray for them and love them. I need your help. Help me do this. And to begin to pray for them and to begin to to care for them. I tell you what, if you pray for some, like sincerely try to pray for somebody that you have a major offense with and you consistently pray for them, the ice in your own heart will start to melt. And you'll start, God will start to talk to you about them. Hey, this is what's going on in their life. Hey, this is what's happening inside the engine. This is why this is going on. And you begin to have a compassion for people. But Romans 12, I appeal, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, a sacrifice, first of all, is consumed. It's, 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 it's not pretty. So he's not saying present yourselves to just do all the fun things of ministry. I'm a living sacrifice. I'm going to worship, and I'm going to you know, help run this, and I love to do this. No, sacrifice is painful. So he's saying present yourself being willing to suffer for the things that I'm talking to you about. This is worship. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, complete. You're living out this completeness in God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned.
If the first person that you're thinking of is yourself, you're already off track. I don't know if I want to come to church today. I guess I'll go. You're already off track. Well, what do you mean? The first person we should be thinking of is not <clears throat> more highly of ourselves that this is all about me. It's, I wonder if there's somebody there today that's going to need me to encourage them. Ah, I don't feel like going today. You don't have to go to church every Sunday. God still loves you. But the thought isn't, I don't feel like going, or I don't need to go, or I shouldn't go. The thought is, I wonder if there's somebody there that needs me to be a blessing to them today. I don't know about going to a small group. I don't know about this. I don't... The first thought is, I wonder if there's somebody there I can bless. I wonder if there's somebody there that needs me. If I didn't show up, maybe somebody wouldn't see them. So I need to be there for that. And that's the way we think, not more highly of ourselves, not that we're the center of attention. They used to think that everything revolved around the earth, and it turns out it actually revolves around the sun. For a long time, they thought it revolved around the earth. Well, it doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around God, and we're all in this mix together. And knowing and caring and helping each other is a big part of it. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then, if, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If you really look at that, he says, you each have a gift that's different, use it. In other words, we come together and everybody has a different thing. You know that story, Stone Soup? Anybody ever heard that? A guy didn't have anything. He had a fire and he had a pot. He filled it up with water. He had no food. So he announced to the whole community, he says, hey, I'm having stone soup. People are, I never had that. Well, if you want it, you could, you're invited. Okay, is there anything I should bring? Yeah, why don't you bring carrots? Next person. Well, I'd like to come. I've never heard of stone soup before. What should I bring? Well, why don't you bring some potatoes? Oh, and you could bring some beef and you could bring some onions and you could bring some. They all get there. He throws his stones in the hot water, throws everybody else's stuff in. At the end, they have a huge feast because everybody just brought their part. And suddenly, there was something amazing for everyone. That's the idea. He's saying, do you know what? Bring what you have, and we're going to contribute it. You might think it's not much, but somebody needs it. Bring it. Throw it in and let it, let it percolate. Let it happen and let people benefit from it. It says, let love be genuine Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So love doesn't always mean approval. It doesn't mean, oh, I approve of everything you do. That's not love. Culturally, that, that's love. In order to actually love somebody, you have to approve of everything they do. Otherwise, you don't love them. Biblically, that's not true. You can absolutely love somebody and not be approving of what they're doing. We see it all the time. You can have a family. You can have a wife, a husband, a, a kid, a, somebody at your work. Man, I love that guy, but I don't like that he does that. So we're supposed to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. In other words, it shows. Affection shows. Oh, I love them in my heart. Not enough. Do they know you love them? Express it in some manner. Show some affection. Show that you care. You know, I was with that person for 10 years. I was around them. I never knew they loved me, but I guess they did. That's what they said. They should know. There should be some expression that they feel that connects to them. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, man, that person honored me. I'm going to try to honor them. Oh, I'm going to do a little bit more to honor them than what they did. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. 
Be constant in prayer, continue or contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. For all this stuff to be happening, there has to be a real connection and intimacy. I can't weep with you if I don't care. I can't rejoice with you if I don't care about your victories. There's a genuineness of care and affection for each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Who? All. All. Find a way to live at peace. Find a way to live without feuding, fighting, warring. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is judgment. God does judge. There is actually a judgment of God that happens. And so you don't have to always be stressed out about, well, they did a bad thing. Is something going to happen? Do you know what? They have the grace of Jesus, but if they want to continue to be living that way, you know what? There will be consequences. You don't have to be the one to stress about it. It's like when you're kids, like, I would always try to get my brother in trouble. He tried to get me in trouble. We always try to get each other in trouble. Well, no, it's his fault. It's his fault. No, make sure he gets in trouble. We don't have to do that because God sees the inside. He knows where people are at, and he knows what needs to be done. It says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I can feed you. I can give you something to drink because I'm not worried about what should be happening to you because God is the perfect judge, and he will work that out. But as long as I'm seeing you, I'm going to feed you. Well, how could you feed me? I'm your enemy. That's between you and God. I know you've been talking bad about me behind my back. I know that you've done this or done that, but you know what? I'm still going to care for you. God knows also that you're doing that, and he's going to find a way to work on that and to deal with that. It's not my responsibility. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but this is what happens when we live this way. Overcome evil with good. Is it... This lifestyle, relating this way, is the pathway to overcoming. It's a pathway to overcoming and the gospel winning out. It's a pathway to overcoming and seeing God move in people's lives and in people's hearts. Whether that's our spouse, whether that's our kids, whether that's our extended family, our neighbor, our schools, our government, I mean, whatever. It is a love and a care and a serving that opens up hearts, opens up minds, and allows us to connect people to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you for your word. God, I pray that whatever area someone may have been uh, challenged on today, Lord, that God, you would, even as your word says, Lord, to instruct and to, Lord, raise our children up, not down, up in the ways of the Lord. God, that you would instruct and raise us up, Father, to live at a different level, think at a different level, relate at a different level than what comes naturally to us. Lord, help us to live in a way, to relate in a way, to love in a way that people can look at us and say, man, those people must be followers of Jesus. And that we would overcome evil, Lord, by doing the good that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the next step and visit www.thebeatchurch.com and get connected with a community committed to applying these truths in their everyday lives. You can also give now to support our messages by visiting www.thebeatchurch.com slash give.